Hey, y'all, how's it going? Welcome to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Um, hmm, yeah. Uh, today on the show, eh, I guess it's just going to be me complaining about stuff. Uh, maybe starting with the Cedar Fever. Huh. Now, there's a genocide I can get behind. Sorry, I know I say that every January and February. I would even support the existence of a state to commit genocide against cedar and juniper trees. Why do we need cedar and juniper trees, huh? You justify their existences to me. That's right, you can't. Anyway. Or I just can't hear you from here. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. And, um, the people who emailed me back said, sorry, can't do it. And the other people, why, they didn't email me back at all. And so it seems as though there won't be any interviews on the show today. On the other hand, I could still hear back from somebody. So, you know, you never know. But also, you know, I could interview you. You could interview me. Today's show... Me complaining your calls. 12 to 2 Eastern. Uh, yeah, this is a blog entry I'm writing up for my blog, which is on my website, which is working today. So far. Uh, and I'm real sorry about all the technical troubles with the server, everybody. I know, you're trying to count on having a show to listen to and then I'm letting you down. However, I think that maybe possibly there's about a 20% chance that I can say that today I've got a couple of different phone calls to make and I'm going to see about maybe getting some new servers going here in a way that we can get all the rest of this stuff straight, man. Um, but anyway, so I'm working on it, man. I'm working on it. Well, I'm waiting around for other people to help me work on it, I guess more accurate. Anyway, uh, right now the site's up, scotthorton.org. You can find uh, 4,000 interviews there. Um, also, you could uh, find the blog, find articles I've written, find documentaries I would like for you to see if you would like to see documentaries. A chat room if you want to join up the chat room. Got a few other guys in there. Hey guys, how's it going, man? It's the chat room at scotthorton.org slash chat. Or, you know, if you have an external chatting application, um, then what you're looking for is an IR, wait, uh, what is it? Freenode IRC, is it IRC? How did all of a sudden I forgot the right acronym for that thing? Well, it's because I don't know what it means. I think that's the right thing I'm supposed to say. IRC, Freenode chat room. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. Um. So, there you go. Um, yeah. Also, that's my uh, Twitter handle, Scott Horton Show. I quit uh, Facebook about uh, two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now. No, almost two years ago. A year and a half ago, almost two years ago. It was 2014, I think. But anyway, I really like not being on Facebook. I don't miss it at all. I'm only on Facebook under uh, one of my friends... Pseudo identities for the uh, Wednesday night skate crew page. I'm gonna skate Bert this week, uh, but other than that, I don't mess with it at all. And 
Yeah, but I'm on Twitter if you want to follow me on Twitter. At Scott Horton Show. It's all right. Okay, so this morning, I was looking at the Twitter, man. And there was Max Boot. And he tweeted a thing. And it occurred to me that I hate Max Boot. And then it occurred to me that, hey, that reminds me of a Rothbard article uh, that Murray Rothbard wrote back in the 1980s, I think it was. It could have been in the 70s even. It was called I Hate Max Lerner. And it's a really funny article. I love Rothbard. I don't, you know. Um, I don't think I'm a member of any cult, but I sure do like reading this stuff. I hate Max Lerner. And then, and I don't even know who Max Lerner is. He's some intellectual from the 20th century. But Rothbard says, oh, I hated him when he was a communist. Or I hate him when he was a Stalinist. I hate him when he was a Trotskyist. I hate him when he was an FDR guy. I hate him when he was a Republican. I hate him when he was this. I hate him when he was that. Piece of crap. Max Lerner. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know what? I hate Max Boot. Hate Max Boot. And his tweet this morning, it's just hilarious, these guys. They have no idea how transparent they are. So there's a guy, you may be familiar, named Micah Zenko. And Micah Zenko, I really should have him on the show. He's a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I know. Psst, or not, psst, just, psst. or maybe both. Maybe, psst, and, psst. uh, do your fingers like a cross to keep the vampires away. Ring a bell. Sharpen your wooden stake and your silver bullets. Yeah. That's, yeah, they're the enemy. That's the heart of the American foreign policy establishment. Those are the guys that built the empire. But Mike Kazenko, I believe, is not just an anti-interventionist. He's a pacifist. He's the kind of guy who would rather die than hurt somebody defending himself, which is a very principled point of view. It's not my own. But if I have that right, I think he would actually, uh, as, as you know, I don't know about in a real flight or fight circumstance, but just according to his principle... He's a pacifist, and I've never seen him, you know, uh, working in wiggle words and and or wiggle room uh, in order to justify the empire's killing of people at all. He's a great critic on the drone wars, a great critic on a lot of stuff, and he wrote a thing about where he's quoting someone, I guess. He was quoting someone saying, you know, targeting civilians and killing civilians is not who we are, and Max Boot replies... Uh-huh, it is too if you're Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. Oh, uh, yeah, Max Boot, the worst warmonger in North America. Guy who supports every intervention that we ever had or didn't, right? Supported bombing Iran and bombing Syria, you know, bombing Assad uh, back the aborted war of 2013 uh, and all these things. Says the only problem with the war in Libya is we didn't invade and stay and hold purple-fingered elections and build up an army yet. The guy who, um, just Google this, Romando, Justin Romando, and his article, Death and the Wall Street Journal. Death and the Wall Street Journal, other keywords, Max Boot, where he wrote in 2001 crying and complaining that George W. Bush was making Afghanistan a bloodless push-button war when we need real American blood and guts spilled so as to work the psyche of the American people to get them invested in the seriousness of this great project. Oh, it's in there. When Bush promised that this would not be a push-button war, and then that's what we're getting. 
He's literally, literally complaining that not enough Americans had died in the Afghan war. Well, now that it's, what, 3,200, 3,300, I wonder if Max Boot is happy now. And then, does anybody really believe that Max Boot's problem, even for a moment, is that Donald Trump and Ted Cruz are avowed war criminals? That's funny. He supported the Bush-Cheney administration the entire time. They're avowed war criminals. They started a war that he cheered for. They instituted a torture regime that he cheered for and defended and still does. And then it's funny that he doesn't mention Jeb Bush's statements. And he's right that Ted Cruz says, yeah, I want to carpet bomb them, which means kill civilians. And that Donald Trump says, yeah, I want to target their families, which means deliberately target Innocent civilians. Yes, absolutely. But then Jeb Bush says, yeah, we need to get the lawyers off the back of the war fighters. But Max Boot doesn't mention that. That Jeb Bush is complaining that lawyers <clears throat> are preventing the military from doing what must be done. His problem with Trump and Cruz is not that they are avowed war criminals. It's that they don't want to get rid of Assad for Israel. They are too anti-war for Max Boot, who's never fought a day in his life. Hey, I'll Scott here. First, I want to take a second to thank all the show's listeners, sponsors, and supporters for helping make the show what it is. I literally couldn't do it without you. And now I want to tell you about the newest way to help support the show. Whenever you shop at Amazon.com, stop by ScottHorton.org first. And just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page. That way the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. It won't cost you an extra cent. And it's not just books. Amazon.com sells just about everything in the world except cars, I think. So whatever you need, they've got it. Just click the Amazon logo on the right side of the page at ScottHorton.org or go to ScottHorton.org slash Amazon. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. Hey, cool. So it turns out I spoke too soon. Uh, Jeff Stein is going to join us um, from Newsweek. Um, uh, now I'm emailing with him. <laughs> uh, hang on one second. Sorry, I'm I'm emailing and I should be... Uh, talking at the same time, um, but I'm not, I'm just, I'm just failing. Um, yeah, uh, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, Jeff Stein, he wrote a thing about, uh, Bernie Sanders and his foreign policy. It's not so good. Uh, so good old Jeff Stein, he'll be on to talk about that. Uh, yeah. Now, um... Okay, I guess the most important thing in the world is the Syria talks here, so let me get to this. First of all, Pentagon seeks hundreds more U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, if that tells you anything about what America thinks about the talks. Finally, in Geneva, Syrian rebel negotiators threaten to leave. Delegations still pushing assorted preconditions. This was uh, written up, I believe, last night by Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. News.antiwar.com. 
After responding to their invitation with a series of demands, then refusing to attend, Syrian rebel negotiators finally showed up in Geneva, with an eye toward continuing to press those same demands, including the release of all rebel prisoners and an end to all airstrikes against rebel territory. Indeed, it's still not clear if the rebel delegation is in Geneva to participate in the talks at all. Their first discussions with UN Special Envoy Staffan de Mistura have not centered around the peace process, but around their preconditions for participation. That and their threats to leave. Though none of their preconditions for attending the talks were met, they still showed up and are now insisting if those demands, which no one has agreed to, aren't met awfully soon, they'll be out the door. There wasn't much expectation that the Syrian peace talks were going to amount to much in the first place, as the UN had no intention of allowing the government and rebels to even be in the same room and major factions like the Kurds were overtly forbidden from participating. Given that, it's unclear why they wanted everyone in the same city to begin with, and have gotten at least a handful of delegates into that city. Uh, what it could possibly lead to... Okay, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, what a disaster. It's not going anywhere. That's predictable enough. Um, the whole thing is a mess. The Saudis put together this un- umbrella organization to supposedly represent the rebels, but I'm not even sure if Arar al-Sham was part of it. Um, apparently, al-Nusra and ISIS were not. In fact, here, uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda are fighting along... That's Nusra is al-Qaeda. Um, are fighting along the Lebanon-Syria border. 16 killed. Lebanese sheiks aim to negotiate a truce between the Islamist factions. And, you know, I've long said, since before the declaration of the caliphate, that it's a self-defeating enterprise, this thing, that um, the Syrians and the Iraqis aren't used to living like Saudis, and they don't want to. And the... You know, so-called Islamic State of Iraq way overplayed their hand. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, really. Way overplayed their hand back in 2006 and were quickly marginalized. And, you know, their policies are so destructive and counterproductive. Um, you know, they serve their purposes in some ways, but um, I think that uh, I think they're pretty much stupid. I think that they let their faith get in the way of good decision-making. You know, I know, let's use up all our fighters in suicide attacks. Yeah, and then what are you going to do? You know? Or anybody with any battle experience anyway. Now you got a bunch of freshmen you just drafted right out of their house, you know? Good are they? Anyway, I don't mean to give them advice, I'm just saying. They're a bunch of stupid asses. If ISIS and Al-Qaeda can't get it together to focus on their Baathist and Shiite enemies first before they have their civil war, then... uh I don't know why in the world any of us should have to be worried about them. But anyway, and I don't know, man, all things being equal, just in a vacuum, I just assume that the people of Mosul at some point are going to rise up and start cutting these guys' throats, killing them to death the same way they did in 06. Remember, uh, all that hype about the surge working was just hype. The only thing that quote-unquote worked was that Petraeus actually finally gave in and cried uncle. The Sunni insurgent leaders had been offering a truce to the Americans since 2004, really since 2003. Every summer, at, right at the end of the war, Gareth and I compile all this live on the show one day. I should have written it all down, but we I had all my footnotes in line and everything at one point. For every single summer, 
Uh, they had been begging the Americans, listen, just let us patrol our own neighborhoods and quit attacking us. Give us some money and some guns and we'll quit attacking you. And then so finally, at the end of 06, Petraeus took him up on that offer, convinced Bush that you have to let me take him up on this offer. So instead of defeating the insurgency, they just bribed it and co-opted it. And the reason that it was uh, that Petraeus was able to convince Bush to go along with it was because he was able to say, sir, look, they've been turning on the Al-Qaeda guys. We've got tribal leaders, Sunni, local uh, religious and tribal authorities who are killing all of our Cowies guys and marginaling, uh, marginaling, <laughs> marginalizing all of Zarqawi's uh, guys. And so we ought to encourage them to keep continuing to do that. But, of course, that, they were still just the smallest part of the Sunni insurgency at the time, and they're in a much better position now uh, relative to the local populations and the tribes and everything else. They have their alliance with the former Baathist military officers, etc., that puts them in a much stronger position. And, you know, I will concede that Patrick Coburn says, yeah, nice wishful thinking, kid, but uh, these guys are here to stay until somebody rouses them from the outside. After all, Mao Zedong was the worst leader ever. He was still dictator for life. Uh, you know, the worse he was, the harder it was for anybody to overthrow him. And I guess, you know, there were coups and counter coups kind of within the Communist Party a little bit there. But point being that uh, the fact that he was the worst thing that ever happened to China in the entire history of its civilization was not enough to undercut its pow his power, just made his power greater relative to everyone else. So, I'm not saying like it's magic that just because these guys are jerks that that means that their days are numbered. If that was the case, the Republicans and the Democrats would have ceased to exist a long time ago around here. But, on the other hand, they really do seem to uh, to push their luck like it's a contest to see how quickly they can wear out their welcome everywhere they go. Uh, and so, anyway, should be that time is on our side. Well, obviously, it's not like they're even a threat to us at all in the first place, so I don't mean it like that, but I just mean we might not even need to fight them at all. Watch them just destroy themselves and alienate themselves from everybody that they try to rule over. And and why should it be any different in Sinai or in uh, Libya than it is in Gaza right now, where these guys poke their head up and Hamas kills them? Wants no part of them. And where, you know, Hamas is supported in that policy by the population. At least for now, I suppose they could be made mad enough to change that stance, but certainly not yet. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. 
Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I forgot to give out the number. You guys want to do some calls? I got Jeff Stein coming up, but not for an hour. So uh, if you guys want to do some calls, man, the number's 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836. Of course, um, there's a bunch of wars and a political season, if you want to talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit of politics now. I just want to uh, emphasize uh, what a dork Sanders is, how how not cool Sanders is and how his strength is simply that he's not Hillary Clinton. That's the only thing that people like about him. I mean, I guess he seems like he's not a liar and personally corrupt. I mean, his voting record is hardly better than hers. A little bit, but not really. We're going to find out from Jeff Stein about his war record here coming up. Um, uh, Jeff's got a whole write-up on it. But compared to Hillary Clinton, it's obvious that you know, he might as well be Gandhi compared to her. She's soaking in blood, man. Uh, and never quits baying for it either. And so it just goes to my real point that the Democrats, I, I'm sorry, I keep repeating myself about this, but it's a funny little study in social psychology, right? Where somehow inside Democratic Party leadership, they built all their incentives around coming to the agreement that, yes, Hillary is our great leader, even though she is absolutely terrible, even though her negatives, I don't think, have ever been below 45%. And even though the entire right is absolutely united in in hatred of her, she'll get, you know, no swing votes or whatever. Anything close to swinging is going to the right if it's up against her. And then, uh, plus, I don't think she'll have much support even from Democrats and particularly male Democrats. Uh, I think even if she was up against Jeb, it would be a blowout. Um, I think uh, Scott Adams is probably right, the Dilbert uh, cartoonist guy, when he says that Trump will be basically running unopposed for the last few weeks of the campaign. She will be completely dead in the water by then. And that is if she gets the nomination at all. I mean, you got to figure Bernie Sanders, and this is no endorsement of Bernie Sanders in case you're unfamiliar with me. I'm an individualist, the exact opposite of Bernie Sanders in every single way. But I'm just saying, you got to figure, uh, yeah, I'm just being an objective analyst type, get it? Here's a guy who had to have assumed all he was doing was being a protest vote, right? That maybe he could pull Hillary to the left a little bit. That He knows that he's not the young, cool, hip, black guy like Obama was. That he, you know, with that whole persona and charisma and everything going for him. Uh, that Obama had back in 2008. Remember the size of the turnout to Obama's speeches in 2008? It was completely out of control. I mean, he was as big as the biggest pop star, um, you know, for a solid year or so leading up to that election. Um, you know, the, the inroads that his marketing people made with the people of this country were just unprecedented, right? Uh, since the Spanish-American War, <laughs> World War II or something. Um, as far as, uh, you know, the, uh, the ability to sway, the, the swaying that was accomplished 
uh, by all the media at the time. Sanders doesn't have any of that going for him. You know, Obama came into it with half the Democratic Party leadership was already behind him. They decided they loved him. There was a great write-up in Newsweek all about this. He gave a speech at the John Kerry convention in 2004. And right after the speech, they said, hey, have you ever thought about running for president? Come here and let me talk to you. There's a bunch of us don't like the Clintons and would like an alternative. And they recruited him right then and there in 2004. That was half of the Democratic Party leadership. Sanders, I don't know what how it works right now, but he certainly didn't start this race as that. Right? He started as the goofy old man who was going to make some points. He was going to be the protest vote. That's why the other, uh, what's his name, uh, Chafee dropped out because he said, well, when I started running, I was going to be the protest vote. But I guess now that Sanders is here, you don't need me. Bye. And he left. Nobody knows why O'Malley's running. Money or something. Um, but Sanders now has realized that, man, Hillary is so weak. People are desperate for the not Hillary candidate. And so, again, it's all just appearances. But what does Sanders have going for him that Hillary does not? In one, in a way, it's not nearly to the same degree, but in a way, it's the same thing that Obama had going for him. He seems like he's not a liar. He is a liar, <laughs> but he seems like he's not. He seems authentic. And after all, you know, the level of, of Hillary Clinton's skeletons and, and her levels of corruption all the way through her entire career is almost impossible to match, right? So anybody going up against her seems as clean as a whistle. And um, so she may still win Iowa. I don't know uh, how that's going to work out. She may very well still win the nomination. But I think if she does, I think Donald Trump is going to completely clean her clock in November. He's already, you know, um, he's already laid down his goalposts. You know, to, when he talks about Hillary, he doesn't talk about Hillary that much. But one of the only things he ever said about her was, oh, who, Hillary Clinton? Just the most dismissive thing. Oh, who, Hillary Clinton? She's lucky she's not in the penitentiary. Right? No no other Republican would say that about her. No other politician in America on that level of politics talks that way about others on their same level of politics. But Donald Trump doesn't give a damn. You know? Um, again, this ain't no endorsement of him. I'm an individualist, the exact opposite of Donald Trump in every single way. I'm just saying, um, when it comes to uh, his ability to, well, his ability to get to turn out the vote compared to hers, I don't think she stands a chance. I think that there will be millions and millions of, quote, new voters in this election who come out for Donald Trump in these primaries, well, thousands and tens of thousands in the primaries, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands, but in the millions for the general election, they're going to be people who've never voted in their life who are going to turn out to vote for this thing, for this guy. Simply because he's not from D.C. That's it, because he's not a governor, he's not a senator. Well, same thing. Uh, the D.C. thing counts for governors, too, is what I'm trying to say. And they're buying it. doesn't matter uh, how disingenuous he is. They appreciate that. They rationalize it the same way Rand Paul supporters and Barack Obama supporters rationalize it. Oh, he has to lie and say stuff to get elected, but I don't care. I like him. So uh, now who's that devoted to Hillary Clinton? <laughs> like, I don't know. She has a. She has a strong plurality among the beta males of America, the avowed beta males of America. 
who else has she got? The the NPR women. That's what ten percent of the population of America, educated, professional, rich, white, liberals, females. Maybe fifteen percent or something. <clears throat> yeah, she's gonna do terribly, and everything she does and everything she says is terrible because she's terrible, and so she's going to do nothing but do worse and worse and worse. And by the way, there are two different FBI criminal investigations about her wrongdoings right now, and no, they are not officially classified as criminal investigations of her. Uh, they're just, uh, you know, doing a cursory this, that, whatever they call it. But we all know what's going on. She's taken bribes to her foundation, which had, you know, absolutely uh, correlated, causated foreign policies at, under her uh, tenure as Secretary of State, including numerous arms deals and regime changes for Saudi and Qatari interests, etc., etc. And, of course, the emails. Which any other person, the executive branch, this is one of the only laws that is ever applied to a government employee, is that you can't leak government secrets. That's the only thing they can get in trouble for, and they do. And especially in Obama years, he's been throwing the book at people for the slightest of leaks. Even accidental ones, never mind talking to reporters and stuff. And what she has done is break the law, repeatedly and severely. Although she'll get away with it, it still makes her look really bad. And like a hypocrite, which she is. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Like I say, Jeff Stein is coming up to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders' foreign policy. It, yeah, it ain't so good. Uh, but hey, in the meantime, I'm happy to take your calls if you want to do some calls, man. We've had a few shows recently where we did some calls and I thought it worked out pretty well. Got some emails that said, hey, I liked listening to your show with calls there. Stuff like that. Uh, the number is 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836 if you want to call in, talk about politics or any of the rest of this stuff. I'd like to mention that, um... Well, there's somebody in the chat room right now by the name of New Dealer explaining splits inside the Democratic Party and who's on whose side and who favors who and these kinds of things. And that just reminded me that, uh, you know, I'm kind of proud of the fact that uh, people of all different political descriptions listen to this show, apparently uh, including quite a few people in government, in the military, although I don't know about officers, but lower level military guys, uh, enlisted guys I know listen to the show. I get contact from them quite frequently, always have. And um, 
Yeah, there's and nobody more opposite FDR and the New Deal than me. And yet, uh, I'm very happy that someone who is a proud FDR following liberal Democrat is a listener to this show because, obviously, priorities. War and peace and freedom. Torture and murder. These are the priorities. And, um, so, you know, obviously I am a libertarian. I have libertarian economists on the show from time to time and this kind of thing. And everything that I say is from my own individualist, libertarian, extremely libertarian point of view, obviously. Um, but the show is not about libertarianism. The show's never been about, you know, me trying to beat you over the head until you adopt every same opinion as me on everything. Just the wars, the empire, the torture. And then, you know, down from there, of course, the domestic police state, the prison industrial complex, and all kinds of crony capitalism, central banking, and all the rest. But, you know, we go in orders of importances. And I know, I mean, you want to get rid of the central bank, but what good is that if you don't get rid of the Congress, too? And next thing you know, you're an anarchist like me. But I'm just saying, you start off, you know, because they could just make another central bank. The Congress could. Um, but anyway, let's just, we'll worry about what's the most important things. Criticizing and explaining and exposing and debunking the very worst of our leaders and the very worst of their projects. Right? I mean, look, and this is for those of you who are libertarians and evangelical libertarians like me. We're never going to win over anything like even a plurality of this country. But maybe, you know, to being libertarians, abandoning their horrifying left and right status ways. But maybe we can influence them to readjust their priorities a little bit, huh? Like, guys, getting rid of the empire is really first and foremost among our important projects here. Assuming you want any of the other things on your plate taken care of, right? None of the rest of this stuff is going to be fixed until we abolish the empire. So, come on. Uh, yeah, I guess now i got to do a show about how this is all FDR's fault. But not today. Uh, anybody wants to call? 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836. And then, I just can't help this, man. i got to pick on Rand Paul for just a minute here. And I swear to God I'm going to move on in a second. But I saw him tweeting out today a little gimmick about... Always with the gimmicks. And this gimmick is about flunking Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio for their voting records. And saying, oh, when they were only there 60-something and 70-something percent of the votes. But look at me. Mine is 94 percent or something. Doesn't he know how sad that is? That all he has are these ridiculous gimmicks? And no real arguments to make as... You know, one of the immediate commentators, you know, responded on Twitter. Local nerd berates cool kids over their attendance. That's your gimmick? Seriously? I mean, for Christ's sake, if we want to sit around and think of gimmicks for Rand, I bet we could do better than that. Too bad that. He doesn't believe in anything or know anything or stand for anything or anything. Maybe he could, you know, try to emphasize some of that. But anyway, 
All right. Hey, here's the call. Anybody else wants to join up? It's uh, 512-271-4836. Hey, I'm Scott. You're on. Hi, Scott. I enjoy your program. I've enjoyed it for the past two years. You do a great service to people who are against the empire. And uh, I was the one on your chat who is giving you the FDR stuff, and cool. so I should give you that information. Thanks. Um, I, I am a, an FDR Democrat. I don't want to talk about it like you today. It's not for today. But to address your Hillary Clinton comments, let me assure you that there's a lot of Democrats that are extremely unhappy with the way she was just given the can basically given the nomination, rigged for her with the primary rules. Um, also, the debates, if you notice, are Saturday night during football games and all that crud, purposefully to marginalize uh, Sanders and, uh, to a certain extent, the other guy, uh, Martin O'Malley. Mm-hmm. Who gets nothing. He Martin O'Malley runs interference for Hillary Clinton. So whenever Sanders gets a good jab in on Clinton during the debate. Martin O'Malley will come in and sort of run interference to get onto another topic. Right. The only thing I'll say about Martin O'Malley is he's for the re- restoration of Glass-Steagall, and that's the only thing. Uh, I just want to let you know there are a lot of Democrats that are um, against gun control. It's an infringement on the Constitution. There are also a lot of white union workers are actually pro-Trump on immigration, and it's a real simple reason. I know we disagree on this issue, but the, Amer- the white American worker, don't worry, I'm not a racist, the white American worker, a lot of union guys in Detroit, for example, or Ohio, lost their jobs because of all the union busting and all the trade deals that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s. And whether you're supported or not, that's a, that's a demographic fact. So a lot of people are looking at Trump, and it has nothing to do with racism or anti-immigration. It has to do with they realize that the new Democratic Party, the ones supported by Wall Street, are after their jobs and standard of living. And so it makes sense. They're picking their poison. I'm not saying that Trump is the greatest, but I'm a FDR Democrat, and I'm genuinely thinking about voting for Donald Trump, because not because I'm some great supporter, but because, as you've noted, Bernie Sanders has a terrible uh, record on the Middle Eastern policy. He supports Zionist policies that cause a lot of the issues that we have today. Until you address that issue, you're going to have a lot of the same problems that you have today, as you've said for many years. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's true, you know, from the very beginning when Trump started running Think Progress, ran a thing that said, hey, there's a lot of things about this guy to like. And and no offense, but primary among their arguments was these horrible uh, economic policies of supporting trade protectionism, which, of course, is, you know, it it sounds like it's for the little guy. Uh, but, you know, in fact, it only benefits corrupt, you know, rich interests at the top and and uh, hurts the standard of living of everybody else overall. But it, it is certainly something that parts of the left and right share in common. Of course, uh, the libertarians almost uniformly, I think, oppose all the free trade deals, too, because they're not free trade deals. We'd support them if they were. They're instead, you know, globalist, uh, corporatist. You know, the World Trade Organization is basically like the the FTC on the global level or whatever, uh, this kind of thing. So, um, uh, you know, we're against NAFTA and GATT and the WTO and the TPP and all these things because it's all corrupt, corporatist, uh, you know, cronyism, mercantilism. So the real opposite of that to me would be, uh, you know, real free trade uh, as opposed to, you know, worse but different protectionism. But I see what you're saying. I mean, there's just no doubt about it that um, – you know, the, the automotive industry especially, um, and a lot of the manufacturing in America got outsourced 
And a lot of that wasn't, it wasn't just the free trade. It was literally the Clintons subsidizing companies to offshore, right? If, you know, we'll pay your way to move your factory overseas. And then if the locals burn it down because the way you mistreat them, we'll insure it. I mean, this is like Bill Clinton is paying them to and and Bush Jr. too to fire these union workers that you're talking about um, and and hire Chinese or Indonesians or whoever instead in the name of their projects. So, you know, certainly there's a a lot of uh, bad distortions going on there and a lot of backlash coming now. So my question for you is, do you think that Bernie can beat her in Iowa? He's obviously going to completely clean her clock in New Hampshire. And I don't know what it's looking like for South Carolina and what have you, but he's still a few points behind in Iowa. But I wonder whether what you think his chances are there. Well, I admit that uh, on the outset, I thought he had no chance. I'll, I'll give him that. But Clinton is is clearly an incompetent candidate. Yeah. She really does seem to be going down in flames, huh? She does. Well, she's also in the airlock and the space shuttle ready to be jettisoned. If she gets indicted, <laughs> it's over. And the FBI, all they have to do is... I don't. I know they're beholden wow, to they Obama. Yeah. But if they indict her with the emails, she's gone. Yeah, that's and it. so Biden's waiting in the wings to take her place because the Democratic establishment does not want Sanders. I, I, re- I recognize a lot of things that you're saying about Sanders, and I agree with you, but I think that's the Democratic Party leadership's position which is not competent. As, as you know, a lot of times they're not competent because if you remember when Obama took office in 2008, the Democrats had control of the Senate and they had control of the House of Representatives, substantial control, and they have lost that in the last eight years. And that's due to their funding of candidates who are, for lack of a better word, Wall Streeters over people who are FDRs, whether you agree with it or not. They've supported candidates. And given the choice, a Democratic, uh, a Republican voter will always vote for the actual Republican than a Democrat who acts like a Republican. Right. And the Democratic Party is controlled by the wrong people. So right. that would be no, you're answer. totally right about that. You. That's a great lesson for the Libertarian so think, Party as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think Sanders, to answer your question directly, Scott, I think uh, that it's still rigged for Clinton. She could very well lose New Hampshire, could possibly win Iowa. It's a caucus. It's it's, it's a little bit different uh, animal. The Super Tuesday, if she's not indicted, Super Tuesday is when there are seven primaries, I think roughly six or seven primaries. She has the ground force to go out and get the vote, and she has a lot more support with minorities than Sanders does. So Super Tuesday is the line for her. If yeah. she gets beaten by Sanders in several states, she's definitely done. But I honestly... I think she has a real good chance to win just because she has the money yeah. to run a ground game, get the minority vote out in support. And, I don't, and of course, that, this is how she lost in 08. You know, she she had this uh, Super Tuesday strategy that, that basically put everything on Super Tuesday. And when Obama ran away with a significant number of them, she didn't really have a backup plan. She had blown all her money on and, and, and basically bet everything. So she must... I think we can assume her people have learned that lesson that they'll have a plan B for in case Super Tuesday doesn't work out, which they really got caught out last time without one. But she should, Scott. Um, but as the second part of her weakness is she's not charismatic. We all know that, but she's not a competent candidate. And I just would suggest yeah. uh, she's on gun control. She's pro gun control, which may work with uh, actually my wing of the party. But I think in the general. Uh, election when you look like you've said 330 million guns that's a lot of votes out there she's not going to win on that issue and i think that uh when you have unlimited immigration and you're against even enforcing the existing immigration laws you're for open borders that's what it comes down to and whether you support it or not 
I think the majority of Americans feel threatened by their jobs because yeah. they, have, they have people coming in and lowering the wages. It's simple supply and demand. If you have more workers, you have lower wages. That's just simple supply and demand. And, um, and what Clinton does not realize, she's coming out in support of those two policies, open borders, pro, or pro-gun control, which is nothing more than taking guns away from law-abiding citizens who won't do a darn thing elsewise. She's going to lose on those issues, and I agree with you totally. Trump is going to, I would love to watch it. It's going to be great television. He's going, to, he's going to take her down in a debate so incredibly it's going to be fun TV. Yeah. I mean, it's been hilarious watching him completely pants and humiliate Jeb right out of his existence, basically. I mean, it doesn't bode well for our future because I think a Trump presidency could be a real disaster, but... In that, on I, that one a, narrow was, question, yes, it's going to be hilarious watching him destroy her. And dude, I'm sorry, but we're over time. Uh, I gotta go. But uh, thanks oh, for calling in. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for yourself, Scott. I'm a donator. <laughs> cool. Thanks for that too. Superior blends of premium coffee, roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit DarrensCoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. I know it's kind of cliche to say, at least around here, it could have been Ron. And what's funny about that is, no, it couldn't have, but yes, it could have. And obviously, uh, power would do everything to stop Ron Paul from being president. And yet, on the other hand, there are enough Americans that if they had all been good enough on the issues... And had decided to choose to do so, they could have absolutely made Ron Paul the president of the United States. And they had to, never mind 88, nobody even heard of him in 88, LP candidate or whatever. But they had uh, two very real opportunities to do so in 2008 and 12, and they blew it. And now look at what we're stuck with, arguing between National Socialist A or Social Nationalist B. What a disaster. Anyway, uh, I'm Scott. I'm taking calls. Um, the number is 512-271-4836, 512-271-4836, and uh, I have a question in the chat room i got to get to. I've got a caller on the line. Hey, and I've got a website with a slash donate on the end of it, scotthorton.org slash donate, if you like helping support shows that you like listening to. Hey, you're on the air. How's it going? Hey, Scott. It's Fitz from, from San Francisco. How are you doing? I'm doing real good. How are you, man? I'm doing fine, thanks. I was looking. I haven't read this. I haven't read the, the Coburn article yet, but I just saw a tweet from a Warnord tweet, and I didn't know if you could explain the situation for me. He was talking to the, that uh, Patrick Coburn was predicting that um, 
that Turkey would in, might invade Syria basically to uh, to fight back against the Kurds or the YPG Kurds. That I guess may or may not be affiliated with PKK. Um, but didn't know if you'd read read that Coburn article and what you thought of that. No, I have not read that uh, Coburn uh, article. I'm looking it up on Owens.com to see if they have it right now. Fitz. Um, yeah, I just thought it was abbreviated by the war by, by the Warner in one of his tweets. But uh, I, yeah, I didn't. What did Warner say yeah, about it? it well, I, I can just read it. He said that Patrick Coburn predicts a Turkish invasion of Syria in response to the YPG slash J advance near the uh, Tishreen Dam. Mm-hmm. So the YPG uh, tried crossing the river near the uh, near the border at um, Jarabulis and were bombed by the Turkish Air Force. And so they crossed again further south, rolling over the, uh, the IS dam, at the dam, uh, or as rolling over the Islamic State at the dam. The idea was clearly that Turkey would be uh, less aggressive uh, away from the border. But Erdogan, being a classic populist strongman with a very powerful army and loyal Red State following, uh, that kind of regime tends to lash out when close to defeat. So it's possible that Turkey will swarm over the border and destroy everything the Syrian Kurds made at such a terrible cost. Yeah. Man, I'll tell you what. Um the uh uh well, first of all, you know, never doubt Coburn. I mean, I'm not saying he's right yeah. about everything, but he deserves the benefit of the doubt on all this stuff. That's for sure. He's been right more more often than not. Yeah, by by a lot. And uh and has a level of understanding of of whose interests are what here that are basically unmatched by any other white guys I've ever heard of anyway. Um could Turkey be gambling on an invasion? I guess is the article. Is that it? Um, uh, you, it could be. Like I said, I haven't. I haven't. I, I, I'm it just pulling it up here. Yeah, but uh, you know, yeah, okay. I think you know Erdogan has said in the past that he will not let the Kurds completely seal the border um, between Syrian Kurdistan and Assadistan. I guess. Because uh, he still needs to supply Alnos or whatever through there, and he had warned that yeah he would do something about it. So the real question is if that does happen, if the Turks, you know, straight up attack the Kurds that America and Russia are backing right now. I mean, we got remember last week Jason Ditz says, look everyone, they're building an air base in Syrian Kurdistan. The Americans are. And Especially is, with Turkey being a NATO ally, so we'd be basically bound, almost bound by uh, by contract or by, by treaty to uh, to support them in it. Yeah, and meanwhile, why are they even doing that when Erdogan already decided to go ahead and let them use the Insulik base anyway? Uh, why do they even think that they need to do that? I guess if it's just for you know helicopters and A-10s and they want them real close or something, I don't know. But And that's a huge escalation, the Americans building a damn air base in so-called Rojava or whatever there, the in Syrian Kurdistan, that's a huge escalation. And then, you know, the I don't know what John Kerry can't go to Turkey and figure out how to get America and our ally on the same page in this thing, because of course, using them as plausible deniability for America to back its Al Qaeda friends, that's one thing. But you know, getting into a war with them over. The Syrian Kurds is something entirely different. I think maybe we could benefit from uh, a little bit of red phone activity here on the part of uh, these best friends for the last 70 years in the NATO alliance. But I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's such a damn mess. Um, You know, as we heard from Seymour Hersh on the show, Obama and the CIA are back in the Mujahideen while the Pentagon's back in Assad for the last four years. So, I mean, not back in, but helping him. 
you know, with intelligence. It's completely comical. Where I used to think I had a pretty good, you know, better than the average, uh, you know, take on on these type, you know, issues in the world. You know, certainly more than the average guy. But I mean, it's just this left me confounded. I don't. I mean, there's just because there is no sense to it. There's no, you know, there's no rational reason for the things, you know, the the things that the government's doing nowadays. I know. Well, it's just like that old punk rock song, "Stupidity or the Plan." Where, yep. <laughs> you know, it's both all the time. I mean, it's it's very easy to say there's a very simple explanation, which is some people decided to make everything chaotic. And <laughs> this is what happened. On the other hand, it's just as plausible that this is what happens when government tries its best. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, you know a little bit about yeah, economics. Yeah, and well, it's just like the uh, well, if you're saying you know, that the, the goal is to make the instability in the Middle East, I, I think we all know one country who that's been their stated stated plan in, <laughs> over the years. Uh, yeah, well, and they're sure not shy about it, especially in Syria, uh, even to this day. Yeah. As I was saying um, during that one debate where Ted Cruz pretended to be taking the Israeli line by saying he was cautious about overthrowing Assad. Um, one of these uh, Winep neocons immediately tweeted out, "That's a lie," and it was. Um, it was a letter, and I had not even noticed this before, um, but it was uh, Michael Oren, again, he of the famous Jerusalem Post article and of the famous YouTube clip of him uh, talking with Jeffrey Goldberg. Here he is writing a letter to the Wall Street Journal saying, damn it, this is the second time I've had to write into you to correct your incorrect statements that Israel is at all hesitant to see Assad overthrown. That's exactly what we want. So stop misportraying our position on this. And they're just absolutely unapologetic about it. Yeah, and didn't wasn't Cruz? Uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Tom Woods. It said it on one of his uh, podcasts. But it was uh, Cruz had. Um, this is you know a few years back, not too long ago. There was a um, a group from uh, of Afghan. I think it was, I forget if they were Afghans or, pa- or Pakistanis, but basically uh, Christians. You know, from from the Middle East, like Christian leaders in the Middle East came over here to in you know spend a spend a week you know a couple of days in, around Congress on Capitol Hill. And Cruz apparently just lit into him for even you know daring to be you know basically not not over. Overly over, you know, head and heels over, the, you know, and supportive of Israel on everything, on all their occupations. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, it was but, absolutely but, ridiculous. But, if you yeah, watch the clip, too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole thing was so canned and planned, and he's stumbling over his lines, and it's, you know, he's just, yeah, and, and you know, I'm not sure actually either, but I, I had thought that maybe there were even Palestinian refugees in the crowd, too. That, that was uh, it, yeah, it was. Yeah, these, it was. I think it was uh, Palestinian refugees. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, you may be Christians, but if you're in the way of the Israelis, screw you, says Ted Cruz, which, you know, he's basically speaking for all of conservatism. So that's all right, I guess. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it, Scott. Hey, me too, man. Thanks very much, Fitz. Bye. All right, y'all. So uh, phone number is 512-271-4836, 512-271-4836. If anybody else wants to call in the show, we'll have one more segment like this. Boy, time flies, huh? And then um, Jeff Stein is going to be on to talk uh, some truth about uh, Bernie Sanders. I wanted to mention, uh, I saw something earlier. I can't remember what the hell it was. Oh, I know what it was. It was a clip of Cornell West laying into Hillary Clinton for accepting all this money from the private prison industry. And uh, the thing about it said that Bill Clinton had defended his crime bill recently, and I didn't realize this. But he said, yeah, but the civil rights leaders were demanding the get tough stuff. And he's right about that. 
people left and right, they do mistakenly believe that government can help them by using violent force against those that they are afraid of. But it's just not true, is it? They're coming for you. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. So, uh, yeah, <clears throat> a few more minutes to burn up here before uh, Jeff Stein joins us. Uh, you can call in if you want, 512-271-4836. We're mostly talking politics, but we can talk about the wars, whatever you like. I got a few more things on my list here. I think I talked about that and that and that. Uh, oh, yeah, I can still talk about that. Uh, but I got a question from the chat room. Uh, oh, let me say again. Did I say? 512-271-4836. 512-271-4836. So Izzy in the chat room says, hey, man, talk about French and British facilitation of American imperialism. Well, good question. Um, uh, good subject to bring up. So, geez, I'm not even sure where to begin. I guess with the end of World War II, America inherited all of the European empires. Right. They inherited the whole damn world, really, less, you know, the communist third Russia. And then uh, shortly thereafter, in 49, China and their sphere of influence in North Korea and Vietnam. Uh, but basically, um, well, and Vietnam counts too. America inherited um, the British, the French, the Dutch and the Japanese empires. And I don't know who else I'm leaving out, but them, too. Uh, the Germans, the Italians, and uh, the British and French, of course, after World War One, because of Woodrow Wilson had expanded, the British Empire had expanded a million square miles, and they had taken over all of the Middle East and, of course, created all the sock puppet kingdoms and all of that. And so, um, and this is really uh, fascinating to read uh, Robert Dreyfus and his great book, Devil's Game, and you can listen to my interview of him about it. I think I interviewed him for a full hour about it or something. There's so much great stuff in there. Um, this would be way back. But it's called Devil's Game, How the United States Helped to Unleash Fundamentalist Islam. And it's about a policy that had begun uh, with the United Kingdom and that had been passed on to the United States of using the religious right in Egypt, particularly and, you know, and firstly, to... Uh, marginalized the communists and the nationalists and which in hindsight is a huge mistake where well, they could have worked out a deal with the nationalists man that would have been good enough they hadn't been bent on acting just like the british and completely subjugating them uh which led to so much so much trouble around the region 
And anyway, um, so yeah, there's that. And then, of course, a big part of it, too, is uh, uh, Britain and France sit on the U.N. Security Council and serve as a, you know, baby blue fig leaf for American power. And, you know, get to pretend, we get to pretend that empire is this mythical international community that is only in, you know, working in the interest to save humanity. Cause after all, even the French agree that whatever it is we got to do is a great idea, you know, like destroying Libya forever. Something like that. Um, uh, certainly worked wonders when it came to Gulf War One. And even in, in, uh, Iraq War II, I hate that Gulf War. I, I, I mean, they, it goes to show what they're fighting about, doesn't it? But, uh, it was Iraq War One. They weren't bombing the Persian Gulf. They're bombing the Iraqis. Um, but even in Iraq War II, hey, we got Tony Blair with us. And, and hey, even the French admit that everything we say is true. They just don't want to do anything about it and all that, right? So they get to pretend that decisions being made on the National Security Council are being made at the UN Security Council, which, you know, makes it seem legit for public relations purposes, more legit, especially for the left half of the American public, and really internationally, too. You know, it's a fig leaf that other nations can hide behind, um, you know, as their excuse to their own populations for supporting America's policies as well. That, hey, well, it's the UN, and this kind of thing. Um and then plus, um, oh, okay, and he says, no, but uh, more recently, um, uh, he's asking, like, AFRICOM expansion, uh, how does that f- sit with the French? I assume they're just in on it together. I really don't know. I guess I doubt that the Americans see their expansion into Africa as much of a challenge to France and their hegemony there to whatever degree they still have it. Um, and that could be wrong. And I guess it depends on, on, you know, how tightly you zoom in. Certainly they work together on the Libya war. Um, I guess the French, I assume, maybe I don't know this, but I guess I assume that they use their influence with Niger to, uh, get America's, uh, uh, permission for America to put a drone base in there and this kind of thing. So. You know, they're NATO partners. And face it, it's the money that comes out of our paychecks that foots the bill for any old French militarism, wherever it is, because their people won't pay for it anymore. So, uh, you know, America, I think, chipped in for the inv- the reinvasion of Mali in 2013, for example. 14. I guess 13. Uh, you know, I better check the date on that. But anyway... um. You know, I really don't know. I guess there could be competition between French companies and American companies uh, for oil resources here or there, and that their governments would squabble about that, but not over anything worse than a big oak table, right? I think mostly, at least historically, the, the role of the French and the British is to help the Americans with wherever they got some expertise. They can lend a hand for whatever our nefarious plans are. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know who's the smart person to ask this of? Eric Margulies. I wonder if he's ever written about this. Uh, he, well, he's certainly written about America and France in Africa. I just don't know if, you know, from this, from the point of view of answering this question. But he certainly knows everything about the French and the French Empire, what remains of it anyway.
So um, that's a good idea. I'll put that in my notes to get Eric on to ask about that. Eric, read the dang French in Africa. Yeah. All right. And then, jeez, oh, look at how quickly the time goes when I babble on and on and on. I guess uh, I just want to bring up there's a great one by Duck Bandow and Forbes. We'll be running tomorrow on antiwar.com about getting out of Afghanistan. I really hope you'll read it. Duck Bandow is really great. He really knows what he's talking about on all the details and everything he needs to bring into his argument. Man, he's got it. Uh really hope you'll take a look at that. And then I just wanted to bring up the news. I guess I don't have much time to cover it or anything, but the uh it's just like any of us could have predicted, did predict, I guess, about what's happening in Europe with the massive refugee crisis, the migrants and the refugees uh from the so-called Islamic world flooding into Europe by the millions. The backlash, you know, began a long time ago. And it's just intensifying now in more and more places. Uh, you may have seen that um, there was a, uh, a rape hoax. A girl didn't, a gr- teenage girl admits making up migrant rape claim, but it was enough to spark these huge protests and people avowedly walking around with Nazi signs. They had a big uh, Nazi protest. I don't know how big. Had a Nazi protest in Dover in England, too, the other day. Um, hundreds of mass men beat refugee children in Stockholm. Look for more of this horrible bad news coming soon. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Live here from noon to 2 Eastern Time on the Liberty Radio Network on the weekdays. Today's the 1st of February. So, the day of the Iowa caucuses. And, uh, well, half the eyes, I guess, are over on uh, the Hillary versus Sanders race on the uh, Democratic side. And uh, today, our old friend Jeff Stein from Newsweek, the spy talker, you can follow him on Twitter, um, has a great piece about the loner. Uh, as he calls him on foreign policy, Sanders may disappoint devotees. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. How are you? Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you again. And hey, listen, before we get into Sanders, I'm sorry, i got to ask you this. Um, your uh, series 
I guess it was two or maybe three articles that you wrote back a few years ago uh, about Jane Harmon and the NSA and Israeli influence peddling and so forth. It doesn't seem to be at the Congressional Quarterly site or whatever it's called anymore. I forgot what it, it's a derivative of some other site. But anyway, I search high and low for that thing, and I cannot find the text of those articles anymore. And I was just wondering if they are posted somewhere at a personal site of yours, or do you know if Common yeah. Dreams ever ripped them um, off or anything? Uh, CQ has put up a total firewall around its products uh, since I left there. And um, you can just uh, Google uh, Jane Harmon NSA and my name, Jeff Stein, mm-hmm. and you'll find other blog sites and so on who have talked about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You can even find the New York Times and the Washington Post confirming the story as well. But the originals, and and I don't even remember why. This is what's killing me, Jeff, and the reason I started with this is because the way I remember it, the follow-up blog post had some real firepower in it, but it's so many years ago now, I don't remember what the follow-up blog post was anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I just wish I had the whole thing of both, but I guess they're not anywhere. Thank you. Anyway, great stuff, though, and, uh, you know, well, historical, good It'll never be forgotten, uh, even if it's only from the New York Times archives uh, and in the minds of some of us. That story will never go away. Um, but anyway, so let's get to your current work here. The loner. Uh, Bernie Sanders, why, he's further to the left than Hillary Clinton on things, and so he must be a peacenik, huh? Yeah, uh, I think that's the idea. Um, I was interested I began getting interested in Bernie Sanders' foreign policy quotient last summer when his campaign really started to get some traction. And I made some inquiries at his office, and they were just absolutely non-responsive. They would not name a single uh, national security advisor on his Senate staff. Um, And as it turns out, there's good reason for that, because he doesn't have one. He doesn't have... Uh, he has a national security advisor in name only who is actually his legislative aide who has no apparent uh, track record at all, zero uh, in foreign policy. So it's just sort of odd. Um, and then on Friday when I, I began pressing them again this week, I, I would ping them regularly over the months. But as you know, I specialize in foreign and military policy, not politics uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. hell to me is having to cover politics. So I generally stay away from it, but I am interested in the national security side. So I <clears throat> started pinging them again last week, and they finally coughed up a list to me, uh, uh, for me, uh, and, and which they also provided to Politico, um, and uh, of a dozen people he had uh, consulted with, but he still doesn't have a foreign policy, a full-time foreign policy or national security aid. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly doesn't have a Kissinger, if you will. Well, and that's kind of smart, right? Because who of any experience in D.C. is not radioactive for all of their horrifying failures and thousands of dead bodies in their wake? Well, that's a pretty good point. Um, uh, in fact, one of the officials uh, or former uh, government, uh, Pentagon official I talked to who, who Bernie had consulted with, uh, said, well, maybe that's a good thing because, uh, <clears throat> that he doesn't have a, a cabal of, uh, foreign policy advisors because he would be starting fresh and look at what the, uh, the establishment got us into. So 
that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, seriously, like, uh, he could pick either the guys that lost the Iraq war for Bush or the guys that lost the Afghan war for Obama. Right? No, but there are people around, like Andrew Basevich, the former army colonel at Boston University. Sure. Who has written, uh, quite poignantly about, uh, uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East and the mistakes that have been made and where we should go. So that's the kind of guy you would expect to be involved. Right. Uh, with uh, uh, Senator Sanders, I should say. And there are a few of those, you know, over at the National Interest. Uh, not everybody over there, but there are a few, you know, quite a few, really. You know, you're right. Absolutely. Nameable, nameable experts who are pretty damn sober when it comes to this stuff. You know, sure. I don't know. What about Paul Pilar? Is he too radioactive for his Israel politics these days um, or not? Yeah, you know, whenever you take any position outside of the conventional on, on Israel, uh, you really get attacked. Uh, or I should say, if you take any position that is less than full-throated, uh, backing of Israel, uh, you get attacked. So Paul Pilar is in that position. He gets attacked a lot. Um, <clears throat> so that, yeah, that's you bring up the, the, um, Institute for Policy Studies there, John Pfeffer and Phyllis Bennis and those guys, and they're pretty reliable. You know, they're, they're, uh, experts. They're, there's a whole stable of experts. I interview them all the time myself. Um, and, and they're pretty peaceful on pretty much everything too. That would be a good place yep. to go, maybe. Well, he hasn't. Uh, he has consulted with, which doesn't mean he agrees with them. In fact, I, I quote in the beginning of my piece, uh, Ray Takei, who, who is a real hawk on Iran and the Iran uh, nuclear negotiations. And he said he was very impressed with uh, Senator Sanders for reaching out to him and soliciting his views and explaining why he was against uh, the Iran negotiations. He said it was a very good, uh, a very good discussion. And, and that was consistent with everyone I talked to who Senator Sanders had uh, reached out to. Uh, he, he's a listener. Uh, he takes notes. Um, he digests the information thoroughly. Um, and he seemed to all of these people very well informed. So I would say he's his own national security advisor. Uh, but it is odd, as I point out later in the piece, that, you know, he's just not a senator anymore. He's a candidate for president of the United States. And at this point, in a successful campaign, you begin to bring in people around you, if only for window dressing, uh, because you you have to start building networks and coalitions uh, to win the presidency. Yeah. Uh, at least that's traditionally been the case. Um, other critics have pointed out or observers have pointed out that he's kind of a a lone wolf on his domestic policies as well. He's his own man, uh, and we certainly know that about him. He's his own man, and he just, uh, he, he does tend to build consensus, but he, uh, um, and he's a listener, he's an includer, or including type of person. Mm-hmm. Well, and his but, real record uh, is, his real voting record is, uh, I'd say, yeah, you know, a couple of clicks to the right of his persona anyway. I mean, he voted against the Iraq war, but he at least mostly voted to fund it, right? That kind of yeah. democratic positioning that we see so often. So it's, he's not quite Ron Paul on these things where he just, well, yeah. even on and Libya, he voted to condemn Gaddafi, but 
but didn't vote for the one to remove him or whatever. But yeah, I don't think there was a vote to remove. Gaddafi. Well, I guess in the House there was a vote to authorize. I don't know if they ever held it in the Senate, but they had one to deauthorize to make Obama stop, which failed, and they had another to authorize it, which also failed. Or maybe Boehner didn't even let him yeah. vote. I forgot. Well, these are complicated issues, are. you know, not just about the policy. They're yeah. about. I'm sorry, uh, we gotta, fun, we gotta stop here and take this order. break, but it's a good place to pick it up on the other side of this break. It's the great Jeff Stein from Newsweek, Spy Talker on Twitter, and we're back right after this. Hey, Al Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to the Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at commoditydiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash commoditydiscs. And thanks. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audio book of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Jeff Stein from Newsweek, spy talker. He's on the national security beat, not politics, but he's covering the national security angle on the Bernie Sanders campaign here. And it is interesting to me that with his whole kind of grumpy old leftist persona that he doesn't make much of an issue out of peace. Seems like it would fit with his overall, you know, branding as the left insurgent against Hillary and contrast to her and that kind of thing. And who cares whether he can really back it up? Uh, but as you say in this article, Jeff, he really doesn't. When, when he could talk about this or that about ISIS, he'd rather just talk about the banks and stick to domestic policy. And I guess that's what his audience, you know, would prefer to hear too, huh? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Why change the channel when people are responding to your main message of economic inequality, the big banks, Wall Street, and so on? And, you know, I'm not faulting him. Uh, in my piece, my Newsweek piece, I don't fault him on his views on foreign policy. I'm just saying, hey, look at this. I mean, let's, let's be frank about it. Uh, the ISIS issue, uh, crosses all sorts of party and ideological lines. Everyone, anyone that I know of, believes it is a scourge to one degree or another. Uh, and, uh, the, it has to be dealt with in one degree, in one way or another. Uh, but most people agree that they disagree on the tools. Um, but, uh, they, everyone agrees that, you know, ISIS is not, uh, you know, back in the day in Vietnam, you know, there was the left kind of romanticized the Viet Cong and the Vietnamese struggle, the anti-colonial or anti-American struggle. No one's doing that with ISIS. ISIS is not held up by anybody as as, as a, an organization or group that uh, we we uh, can find a way to admire at all. Um, so 
you know, Bernie and and uh, and Hillary. unfortunately, if if you can't find anybody who loves them, you can't find anybody who opposes war against them. That's your kind of what you're saying there, right? Yeah, we can't just be yeah. anti-interventionists unless we're Maoist. No. Well, it, the thing here is, and, and my, this is just my opinion, is that at least the Democrats seem to be thoughtful about it and talk about it in thoughtful ways and recognize that it's a this is we're we're now engaged in a decades long struggle with what is amounting to be a revolution uh in the Middle East. I think it's I think it'd be more appropriate now to call ISIS a revolutionary force upending uh the stat, status quo is sort of the fiery chapter of the Arab Spring. Uh, and this fire is consuming, uh, uh, you know, these regimes, uh, uh, all, all these Arab regimes. And, um, at least, so the Democrats seem to recognize that as a group, whereas the Republicans just talk about, you know, carpet bombing and stuff like this as if you can, you know, quickly end, uh, ISIS through some sort of, uh, violent bombing campaign, ultraviolet bombing campaign. But, you know, I must say that, that that Sanders' idea of creating a NATO-like organization, which would include Russia and include the Arab states, to coalesce and, and take on ISIS, is just, in the opinion of most people who look at this stuff serious, it's just not. It's a, it's a non-starter. I mean, these Arab regimes that he would engage, uh, have engaged uh, with boots on the ground uh, in Syria would include Saudi Arabia and Jordan and so on. Well, they don't have armies. This is something that doesn't seem to get wide currency. They don't have armies. Their military forces are really for domestic control. They're really police forces for for to keep down internal dissent. Um, they just don't have armies that can go in and fight in Syria, even if they had a desire to do so. And as we know, as your listeners, I'm sure know, you know, there are important elements in Saudi Arabia who are backing ISIS. So, um, or groups aligned with ISIS. So, uh, this is a very, very complicated picture that doesn't, uh, lend itself to easy, Solutions. I mean, nobody has a good solution. Is the problem? Mm-hmm. Is yeah, it does really kind of seem silly for him talent. to say, like, yeah, we need to forge an alliance between Iran and Saudi Arabia to go take on the Islamic State. And basically, what he's doing is just punting. At, right? He's just he's he's pulling a Donald Trump. He's he's figuring out a sentence that he can say to fill the time before he changes the subject again, and then that's it. That's right. That's right, but we shouldn't be too glib about this, and I'm not saying you're being glib, but I think there is a lot of glib talk out there about this very, very serious problem of ISIS. Um, and, uh, boy, if you've got a solution, that's great, but they're, they're, I mean, this makes Vietnam look so simple. <laughs> well, I mean, and listen, everybody, Jeff can say that because you were in Vietnam. You were in, what were you in Vietnam again? I, I, I was a military intelligence. Yeah, no, that's what I thought. Army intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was really simple. You know, either stay in and keep fighting or get out. Uh, and there were some Cold War, you know, big power ramifications to that. Uh, but that looks so simple. And the irony, 
The, the tragic irony of Vietnam is that Vietnam was never important to the national security of the United States. But the Middle East is. Well, you know, it won't be today. But at some point, you and I should argue about this. And I think I could convince you otherwise that you know, right. we really don't need to be engaged over there whatsoever. But anyway, let's move on to more about Bernie Sanders and your great article here. Can you talk about the F-35 and what it has to do with uh, Bernie Sanders and Vermont here? Well, as far as I can suss it out, his position is that, yeah, this program's been a mess. Uh, uh, you know, it's called the jet that ate the Pentagon for it's just monster cost overruns. It's still not really working right. Um, um, and, uh, but his position is like, okay, might as well stick with it now. And then he adds it really, classic congressional uh, a member of congress's uh, attitude toward any military project what's in it for me and what's in it for him in vermont uh they have uh, an air force base uh base in vermont which has the vermont national guard uh, people may not know that these national guard uh fighter units um rotate in and out of the war zones so uh at any one time, you might have the Vermont National Guard, the Virginia National Air Guard, uh, flying sorties, uh, in Syria and Iraq. And, um, um, so Bernie looks at these as, as this is a job multiplier for him. If the, so he would like the F-35 based to at least get some of them, uh, into the v- Vermont National Guard, uh, and that would, you know, create jobs in Vermont. That's just a classic congressional view. And <clears throat> it's one reason that the Pentagon spent, you know, spreads out its spending uh, all over the 50 states or virtually 50 states so that uh, Congress, members of Congress are very uh, reluctant to vote against any military program that might lose uh, jobs uh, in his or her district. That's just the way it's always been. It's called the Iron Triangle. Right. The Pentagon, Congress, uh, and the defense industries, military industries. Right. And never mind, as Hazlitt would say, the unseen, all the jobs that are being destroyed as all the wealth that could have created them is being uh, diverted instead into the ridiculous F-35. And it, it just so happened that this morning I read a great piece by Jonathan Marshall at Consortium News about just what a turkey the F-35 is. I mean, you just couldn't overstate. It's worthless. And in, a, and in any real battle with the Chinese or the Russians, it's going to lose. Simple as that. Well, the Chinese stole... Their plans for the F-35. So that they it, know what not to do. No, they built their own. <laughs> does it does it set a, catch on fire on the runway and uh, you can't fly it in the rain or I don't know in the cold you know, or China is a <laughs> uh, is not an open society, so we don't know if they're having the same problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, but we, they are uh, developed. They've got prototypes out, and uh, they're testing them, and uh, they're in the air. And you're and saying they look, they like, look like F-35s, like they're based. They on are. F-35? They are. Yeah. They're they're based on you know, Chinese espionage is very very active here in the United States, and they've stolen a lot of defense uh, military secrets. They're very good at economic espionage. And, uh, and, and you're saying military... this time the Israelis didn't give it to them? <laughs> hmm. 
Sorry, I'm just joking. The Israelis are good at espionage also. <laughs> uh, and we are good at espionage yeah. also, but not as good in China, I think, as the Chinese are here. Um, anyway, the people who are experts on this uh, say that the, uh, chi- the latest uh, Chinese fighter bomber is a virtual copy of the American F-35. It was developed based on stolen American uh, blueprints. Yeah. So maybe they'll go broke. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it seems to be the policy. You know, there's a great interview with the guy. I forget his name, uh, Jeff, but he's a guy who designed the F-16 and the F-15 and even tells a little anecdote about the only reason they made the F-16 was because some of the engineers went rogue and secretly made it without the bosses knowing uh, so that they could make a jet that was actually worth the money uh, and useful. Uh, but then he is the one explaining about the F-35, and he says it only has one purpose, and that is to transfer money from the American taxpayer to Lockheed. Mm-hmm. It is not good for any other thing. It could be beaten by – and this was before the leak from war to War is Boring and all of that. This is a couple of years ago. He's saying the F-16 could take the F-35 on any trial and, you know, in any situation. And it, of course, was engineered by this guy back in 1972 or whatever it was. Yeah, well, it's really hard to, to ride herd on these programs. And uh, in the unlikely event that Bernie Sanders is elected president of the United States, he'll find that the view from the Oval Office is very different from the view in Capitol Hill or the campaign trail. Yeah. Uh, and these uh, these are like the military programs are like these living organisms um, that have a monster lifespan and are very, very hard to uh, get control over uh, yeah. very very hard it's not easy at all yeah sanders and, himself and is neither is uh, neither is the the confrontation with isis going to be easy it's going to it's it's going to be very very difficult and even if the bombastic republicans take the white house they're going to find that the reality uh they're going to sit down with people at the pentagon and so on and and most of whom are going to say this ain't as easy as you think it is yeah. So uh, there's going to be a, a big reality check. I think I, I think uh, yes, I think Senator Sanders really understands how difficult this is. Uh, uh, and uh, he's very thoughtful about it to a, to a degree, but it's not his issue. You know, military and national security foreign policy was not Bill Clinton's issue either. And it wasn't Obama's issue either. Uh, they don't. None of them have passion about uh, foreign policy, uh, and none of them came into office uh, having a passion or much knowledge about foreign policy. I've talked to campaign foreign policy advisors to Clinton, uh, uh, and, and they said, you know, it was really hard to get that to get him to focus on foreign policy. He didn't. He just didn't care about it that much, um, and you know. I think we've seen some results of not knowing much or caring much about foreign policy in the Obama administration. Right. Then again, is, God help us that they really have a plan, you know, like what happened in the Bush years where they go, they said, yeah. we know what to do. And it was uh, the ruination of any chance we had for peace in this century, apparently. So, yeah, well, there were a lot of Democrats who went along with that. Let's not forget. Yeah, including, of course, including our current Secretary of State, our former one, <laughs> uh, yeah. Sanders competition, the vice president. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
No doubt. All right, listen, I've kept okay. you over time here. Thanks very much for coming back on the show, Jeff. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate nice it. Nice Bye-bye. All right, so that's Jeff Stein. He's over at Newsweek. This one is uh, Bernie Sanders' foreign policy may disappoint devotees. And you can uh, follow him on Twitter at SpyTalker. See you all tomorrow.